Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Kate Merriweather, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today we're going to be talking about a 17-year-old girl with absent menses. We're going to discuss what could cause absence of menses in this patient age group, as well as other abnormalities in pubertal development and the differentials for those. I'm Dr. Kate Merriweather. I'm the editor for the OBGYN series in Beyond the Pearls, and you can tweet at me at Kate Merriweather1. For those of you who are following along in the Beyond the Pearls OBGYN textbook, we are on case 45 on page 309. This case was written by Dr. Yelena Dondick and Dr. Kelly Pegidis from the University of Louisville School of Medicine in Louisville, Kentucky, Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility. So let's go to our patient. We have a 17-year-old girl who presents the office because she's concerned that she's not had her menstrual period yet. She's starting college in the fall and is concerned that she still looks, quote, like a child. So what other questions do we want to ask this patient? First, you want to clarify if she's never had any menstrual bleeding, what we call primary amenorrhea, or if she had menses previously and they've since stopped, what we call secondary amenorrhea. Primary amenorrhea merits workup by age 15 if there are secondary sexual characteristics, or SSC, and it merits workup by age 13 if there are no secondary sexual characteristics, or they're absent, like no breast development. And if no menses have occurred by three years after breast development started, that also would merit merit a workup. So there's sort of three situations. By age 15, if there are secondary sexual characteristics, by age 13, if SSC are absent or no breast development, or if there's no menses that have occurred by three years after breast development started. So regarding this patient's complaints about her appearance, you want to get a description of her breast development and pubic and axillary hair growth. You want to document how tall she is compared to her peers and family members, her neonatal and childhood development, any medications she is taking, any recent stress, change in her weight, diet and exercise habit changes, breast symptoms such as discharge or pain, and any neurological symptoms such as headaches or visual changes uh, that might be occurring. Little clinical pearl for steps two to three, the median age of onset of puberty in females is currently reported at nine and a half to 9.7 years, with the median age of menarche about 12.4 years. The sequence of pubertal maturation is typically first, growth acceleration, two, breast development, or what we call thelarchy, three, pubic hair development, or pubarchy, four, a growth spurt, and five, onset of menses, or menarche. So how should one approach the diagnosis in primary amenorrhea? In the absence of pregnancy, primary amenorrhea is due to either a genetic condition causing gonadal dysfunctions or an anatomic abnormality of the outflow tract, meaning the flow of tract from the uterus, through the cervix, through the vagina, through the hymen, to the outside world. 
One simple way to think about primary amenorrhea is to break into three basic considerations. The first is evidence of estrogen production by the ovaries, displayed by the presence or absence of breast development. Second, we consider the presence of a uterus, which is evident on a pelvic exam and or ultrasound. For example, malarian agenesis would be suspected in the presence of normal secondary sex characteristics with the absence of the uterus. Third, we would look for evidence of gonadal function using a follicle-stimulating hormone or an FSH level. Another clinical pearl, the most common cause of primary amenorrhea is gonadal dysgenesis secondary to Turner syndrome, or sometimes called Swire syndrome, which is 43% of primary amenorrhea. And then that's followed in prevalence by mullerian agenesis, 15%, and physiologic delay of puberty, which is 14%. So let's go back to our patient. She states she's never seen any menstrual bleeding at all, not even spotting. The patient buys bras in the kids' section of the store. She is shorter than all the girls in her class, and she does not shave. She denies headaches, visual changes, galactorrhea, sometimes referred to as uh, clear breast discharge or milky breast discharge. Past medical or surgical problems are denied, and she denies any family history of delayed puberty. So what would be the most likely cause of amenorrhea in our patient? Our working diagnosis is primary amenorrhea, since she never bled, and she doesn't have evidence of estrogen production because of her lack of secondary sexual characteristics. So this is highly suggestive of gonadal dysfunction or gonadal failure. Her other diagnosis could be physiologic delay of puberty, also known as constitutional delay. But this is usually associated with a family history of delayed puberty. So what are the physical exam findings to look for when evaluating primary amenorrhea? The physical exam, which is focused on breast and pubic hair development, assessed by Turner staging, usually guides the differential. As we talked about earlier, breast development is a sign of functioning gonads, and a pelvic exam assesses for the presence of a uterus or vagina. Assessment of any skin changes, such as a presence or of excess of hair, acanthosis nigricans, acne, can also aid in our diagnosis. So let's talk a little bit about the tanner stages of breast and pubic hair. Stage zero in all of these is no pubertal development or the, the childlike appearance. And stage five is complete adult development. So there's tanner staging of both breasts, which goes from stage one, elevation of the papilla only, then to stage two of breast bud, which is elevation of the breast and papilla to a small mound and enlargement of the areolar diameter. Then we go to stage three, which is additional enlargement of the breast and areola with no separation of their contours. Stage four, which is areola and papilla project from the surface of the breast to form a secondary mound. So now they have, we have sort of two mounds of different contours. And then there's stage five, a mature stage with projection of papilla only with recession of the areola to the general contour of the breast. Now, let's go to the pubic hair development in a female. Stage one is the vellus over the pubes is the same as that over the anterior abdominal wall. Stage two is sparse, slightly pigmented downy hair along the labia that's straight or only slightly curled. Stage three is hair spread sparsely over the pubic region and is darker, coarser, and curlier than other hair around the body. Stage four is hair is adult type, but the area covered is smaller than in most adults, and there's no spread to the medial surface of the thighs. In stage five, hair is adult in quality and type that distributed as an inverse triangle and spreads to the medial surface of the thighs, but not up the midline anterior abdominal wall. A little clinical pearl. Androgen insensitivity is a rare disorder with karyotype 46XY, which represents approximately 5% of primary amenorrhea, so not as common as Turner's physiologic delay like we talked about earlier. 
Serum testosterone in patients with androgen insensitivity is going to be in the normal male range or slightly elevated, and the patients will have no pubic hair because of the insensitivity to their receptors. So we're going to go back to our patient, further narrow down our differential. On physical exam, the patient is noted to be 4 foot 11 and 125 pounds. She has Tanner stage 1 breast and pubic hair development, and she has a broad chest with widely spaced nipples. On a pelvic exam, a normal vagina and cervix are present, and a small uterus is palpable. So what labs should be part of her initial workup? So after exclusion of pregnancy, remember, don't ever forget to do a pregnancy test in amenorrhea. The next step is to measure her FSH, her thyroid-stimulating hormone, or TSH, and her prolactin levels. These three tests will identify most amenorrhea causes. So the patient's FSH level is 68 MIU per milliliter, and her TSH and prolactin are in the normal range. So what additional workup would you like to order for this patient? If the patient has a level greater than 30 MIU per ml of FSH in the presence of persistent amenorrhea, that's considered an indication of gonadal failure. So gonadal failure or genesis or dysgenesis often has a genetic cause. And your next step with this patient would then be, of course, a karyotype. You want to know what her chromosomes are like. Turner syndrome, which is monosomy X or 45X karyotype or 45X mosaicism, is associated with a milder clinical presentation such as secondary amenorrhea and can clearly be diagnosed with a karyotype. Karyotype testing in this patient reveals 45XO, so she's diagnosed with classic Turner symptoms. What physical exam findings are commonly seen in Turner syndrome? So patients with Turner syndrome commonly have a short stature, lack of breast development. Skin manifestations include extra folds of skin on the neck, giving the appearance of a short webbed neck, and it's seen in about 30% of females with Turner's. A low hairline at the back of the neck is common, multiple pigmented nevi, and lymphedema, puffiness or swelling of the hands or feet. Skeletal abnormalities such as the shield chest with widely spaced nipples, cubitus valgus, a forearm that angles further away from the body when extended, shortened fourth metatarsals, and a matalung deformity of the forearm, which is congenital subluxation of the distal ulna, are also common features in Turner syndrome. Let's back up a minute and take a look at the decision tree for primary amenorrhea that got us to this diagnosis in this patient. So where do we start? We usually start with secondary sexual characteristic, SSC, like we talked about before. If they are present, we do a physical exam and look for the absence or the presence of a uterus. If a uterus is absent, we're going to check for 17-alpha-hydroxylase deficiency, 5-alpha-reductase deficiency, 17 to 20 decimalase deficiency, so abnormal hormonal processing issues. If the uterus is present, we're going to check an FSH level to see what we have in the way of functioning gonads. If it's normal, we're looking at physiological delay or something called Kalman syndrome. If the, the FSH level is high, you get a karyotype like we did in this patient because we have indications of gonadal failure. There we're looking for Turner's, XO, other XY disorders, or Y-line disorders. Now let's go to the other half of this rubric. So let's say that the secondary sexual characteristics are absent. Then you do a beta-HCG to check for pregnancy. If it's positive, you got pregnancy. If it's negative, you're looking for a physical exam for a uterus present or absent. If the uterus is present, you're going to check an FSH, a TSH, and a prolactin. 
If the TSH is high, you've got hypothyroidism. If the TSH is normal, you're looking for high prolactin, which is hyperprolactinemia, or normal prolactin, in which case you check an FSH. If the FSH is normal, you check an estrogen level. And if that's normal, you consider maybe that you have PCOS, obesity, Cushing's, an ovarian mass or an androgen tumor. If the FSH is normal, but the estrogen level is low, you do a neurological exam in an MRI, which if normal, you go to anorexia, malnutrition, stress and exercise induced, and chronic disease induced. Also, there are things like Addison's on hypothalamic failure that could have normal findings on a neurological exam MRI, but low estrogen, normal thyroid, normal prolactin, normal FSH. If there's low estrogen and the normal FSH, and a neuro exam or MRI is abnormal, you could be dealing with a pituitary mass, diabetes vasculitis, lead toxicity, or she-hands. There's also the possibility of having a high FSH with the prolactin and TSH normal, and then you go into ovarian failure, causes galactosemia, savage syndrome, or idiopathic things. So first look for the secondary sexual characteristics. If they're present, always do the pregnancy test first. If they're absent, do a physical exam looking for a uterus first. That's the rub. All right. So let's go back to our patient here that has this issue of Turner syndrome. Let's talk a little bit more about Turner syndrome. Usually girls with Turner syndrome and the karyotype abnormality associated with it have early diagnosis um, if they have more skeletal abnormalities. Some women have less stigmata, but have some short stature, um, which lead to their uh, karyotype investigation, or like our patient, all the way up into the teens where they have absence of menses. They usually have either an absent second X chromosome, or they have mosaicism, where some of those cells have an absent X chromosome that's second, and some of them have both. What other medical conditions are associated with Turner syndrome in adults, and how would you screen for those? So what does this patient have to worry about or think about as they get older? One third of patients with Turner syndrome are born with a heart defect, most commonly coarctation of the aorta or abnormalities of the aortic valve. Of Turner syndrome children, 5 to 10% have some sort of aortic coarctation that needs immediate surgical correction, and unfortunately, 30% have a bicuspid aortic valve. These cardiac defects can, of course, be life-threatening, especially during pregnancy on the part of the Turner syndrome patient, and even can be life-threatening after surgical correction. Consultation with an experienced cardiologist is a very good idea for this lady, and evaluation typically will include echocardiography and an EKG. High blood pressure, kidney malformation, and skeletal malformations are also seen in these patients. There's a high incidence of osteoporosis in Turner's patients due to the lack of estrogen from their non-functioning or streak ovaries. So bone mineral density screening is warranted in them. Turner syndrome women are also twice at risk of developing type 2 diabetes, and hypothyroidism is seen in approximately 30%, secondary to Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Screening with fasting glucose levels and TSH, if it wasn't performed during the workup for amenorrhea anyway, is usually recommended. So in our patient, this patient has a cardiac evaluation uh, recommended, and she's known to have a mild form of aortic coarctation that does not require surgical intervention at this time. Her blood pressure is 116 over 63 millimeters mercury, and her fasting glucose is 67 milligrams per deciliter, which is normal. A skeletal survey and renal imaging are normal as well. 
When reassured by her normal findings, she's concerned about her sexual development given her Turner syndrome. So what treatment options are available for her? Any form of premature ovarian insufficiency requires estrogen replacement therapy, or ERT, both to prevent bone loss, which we talked about before, and to prevent premature coronary heart disease, not to mention established menses and secondary sex characteristics. Progestins are common, um, commonly used concurrently to prevent risk of endometrial hyperplasia, thickening of the lining of the uterus, and cancer from unopposed estrogen exposure. When Turner syndrome is diagnosed in childhood, the use of low-dose anabolic steroid with growth hormone, GH, has been shown to increase final adult height compared to those who have a delay to, uh, to the start of that therapy. In our patient, however, it would be prudent to initiate ERT to induce breast development, and we can consider the use of GH as she is still short in stature and not at full height. Girls with Turner syndrome can start a low-dose estrogen at age 11 to 12 to induce puberty if they're diagnosed that early. And patients older than 15 can be started on adult doses to achieve a target estradiol concentration of 100 pg per ml. A simple way to administer hormones is through oral contraceptive pills, or OCPs. Or patients can use an estradiol patch or estradiol pills with monthly administration of medoxyprogesterone. So let's go back to our patient who is now going to engage in hormone replacement and GH therapy. She continues combined OCPs for three years and has monthly monthlies then buys adult bras and gains 1.5 inches in height from her growth hormone therapy. The patient is dating a young man she met in college, and they plan to become engaged their senior year. So now she's concerned about her future fertility potential. So how would you counsel this patient about attempting pregnancy in the future? Because Turner syndrome is due to ovarian dysgenesis, only 2-5% to of women with Turner syndrome have the potential for spontaneous pregnancy. And usually those are the ones with mosaicism. Remember, I talked about those young ladies that have some cells with XO karyotype and some cells with XX karyotype. So in vitro fertilization with donor oocytes is an option for Turner's patients should they not have that reproductive potential, which is the majority of them. And pregnancy rates with IVF in these patients are equivalent to the general population. However, any Turner's patient desiring pregnancy requires a cardiovascular evaluation because the risk of death from aortic rupture or dissection during pregnancy or postpartum is quite high in these women, high as 2%. Due to this, pregnancy is absolutely contraindicated in Turner's patients with a cardiac anomaly. The options of adoption or surrogacy should be discussed to build a family in a patient that has this serious cardiac issue. So now let's go beyond the pearls a little bit. First of all, menopause occurring before the age of 40 is defined as primary ovarian insufficiency, or POI, and occurs about 1% of women, or it's just 0.1% younger than the age of 30. About 12% of women with POI have structure abnormalities in the X chromosome. A premutation in the fragile X gene, or FMR1, defined as 55 to 200 CGC repeats, is associated with primary ovarian insufficiency. Patients with XY karyotype cells, so like Turner mosaic with XY cells as part of their cellular makeup, are at some risk of gonadoblastoma and dysgerminoma. So surgical gonadinectomy is offered to these women with consideration of their goals and desires integrated with their diagnosis and genotype. Classic Turner syndrome karyotype, the 45X in all cells, is most common human chromosomal abnormality occurring in zygotes. 0.8% of zygotes have this but fewer than 3% of these fetuses survive to term. So it's a very common karyotype in spontaneous miscarriage. 
Some women with Turner syndrome have visual, spatial, or mathematics learning issues, even though Turner's patients have normal overall intelligence and normal language skills. Short stature is seen in all patients with Turner syndrome and 80% of mosaic patients, with an average height being less than 58 inches. This is partially due to loss of the shocks, S-H-O-X gene on the X chromosome, a gene important for long bone growth. Loss of the shocks gene is also the reason for the Madelung deformation of the wrist or forearm that we talked about earlier. 46XY gonadal dysgenesis, or GD, is a result of abnormal testes development in utero. In pure complete GD, previously called Swire syndrome, which we mentioned earlier as a common form, there's only a fibrous streak which does not secrete androgens, so these individuals are phenotypically female, even though they have 46XY chromosomes. So let's do a case summary on this young lady. She was a 17-year-old girl who presented with primary amenorrhea and no breast or pubic hair development. Her physical exam was remarkable for short stature, a broad chest, lack of secondary sexual characteristics, but a normal vagina and uterus. Her laboratory profile is notable for an elevated FSH. A karyotype is done and confirms the diagnosis of Turner syndrome, 45XO. You start her on estrogen and progestin therapy to induce puberty as well as growth hormone treatment in an attempt to optimize her height potential. She returns in three years and wants to discuss fertility options, and you review with her the cardiac risks in pregnancy with Turner syndrome. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.